Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, a couple of announcements before we get started. Uh, first of all, this Sunday is a congregational meeting. And even if you're not a member, you can still be here because I think it will be important to understand what's going on and why we're doing what we're doing or why we're thinking about doing what we're thinking about doing, what the long-range plans are. So that will be immediately following uh, church on Sunday morning to talk about the space next door and then to uh, see what is going to be involved in that. Is there something else I need to do now? Yeah, there's, there's a family night coming up end of the month, but people need to get that on their calendar, so that's the 29th uh, family night, and then this thing's not staying on right. Okay, I think that's it. Nothing else? Okay. If you look behind the screen over here on my right, you will uh, see the new organ is partially put together, so uh, maybe after class somebody can put the screen up and people can look at it and see. What's being done? I don't know that it'll be ready for Sunday morning, uh, but it will be by the next Sunday. Uh, before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to study your word this evening. We thank you that you are a God who has a, a deep concern about informing us about all the details of your plan and details of history and that you have revealed these things to us sequentially over the years, over the centuries, that today we have a completed and sufficient canon of scripture. And that as we seek to understand your plan and purposes, you may not have answered every question that we have, but you have given us all the information we need in order to live our spiritual life and to understand the scope of your plans and purposes for the human race. Now, Father, as we continue our study, we pray that you'd help us to assimilate all these things and to take the new doctrines that we learn, join them with the doctrines we've already learned, that we may come to a greater understanding and appreciation of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The last couple of weeks I have uh, taken a little bit of a detour in Hebrews to look at dispensations because there's a change that is at the root of what is being talked about in Hebrews chapter 7 and especially into Hebrews chapter 8 when we talk about the new covenant. And so I took time just to give you an overview and a little brief introduction into what dispensations are, that a dispensation is an administration by God one uh, during history of these sequential periods in history as God is working out his plans and purposes in the human race. And I also, there's a little bit of an echo, I also have a distinct, there's also a distinction between what we might call ages and dispensations. One of the key elements in a dispensation is that there must be new revelation. There must be new information from, from God 
so that there is a basis for either the human race or a portion of the human race to understand that the way God is administering uh, human history, the expectations, requirements, uh, responsibilities are shifting. And so that is usually revealed in a covenant, but not every covenant changes dispensations. For example, the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 14, the uh, new covenant in Jeremiah 31 do not change dispensations. However, when the new covenant goes into effect, actually when all three of those find their ultimate fulfillment, which is at the second coming of Jesus Christ, then, of course, there is a shift in dispensation. But the revelation about those covenants doesn't change uh, a dispensation as the Abrahamic covenant changed dispensations, as the Noahic covenant changed dispensations, or the, or the earlier ones. Now, last time when I finished... I was putting together a chart or overview of the dispensations, and I thought I had added uh, one that dealt with the end of the uh, church age, tribulation, and millennial kingdom, and that wasn't there. I thought I had added it, and I didn't. But So today I'm going to start off with an overall chart that shows the relationship of all of the ages and all the details and all the dispensations, so you're going to have to write fast to get it all down. Start off with biblical dispensations, and we have, uh, let's see, the age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel. So these are the broad ages that cover the Old Testament period. Then we have the age of perfect environment which is the initial dispensation from creation to the fall. There, it's, the information is revealed in what I call the creation covenant, what Schofield called the Edenic covenant. Uh, this is revealed in Genesis 1, 28 to 30 and Hosea 6, 7. There's a responsibility that's delineated, and that is to fulfill the covenant, to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the field, to guard and keep the garden, and not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a failure. They ate the fruit, Genesis 3, 1 through 6. And there's a divine judgment, a spiritual death, and expulsion from the garden. Then we have, because of the outline of the condemnation, we have a new dispensation that has been called human conscience. The reason it's called human conscience is there's no established authority structure outside of the individual or outside of the family, we could say. So it's, there's, no, there's no government per se. There's no authorization that we know of in Scripture revealed for human government. So the covenant that governs this is the Adamic covenant, Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The responsibility is animal sacrifice. Once again, salvation is based on grace. So it's an issue of sacrificing that which God has created. Man does not produce or make the animals. Now later on, this is what confuses some people, later on in the Levitical sacrifices, you have grain offerings and you have uh, various other offerings that involve bringing produce but they serve a different function. So we begin at the time with Cain and Abel. There's the understanding that the, the foundational sacrifice is a blood sacrifice. Cain brings uh, an offering from the fruit of the field. 
But Abel brings a sacrifice that is honored by God because it is a, as a lamb from his flocks, and he sacrifices it. So you, you'll read some people who say, well, there's not really a, an issue there. It was, it was Cain's attitude, not the sacrifice. But what they're doing is reading back into Genesis 4 aspects of the Mosaic Law, which doesn't come along for another couple of thousand years. Their failure was evil and wickedness, as described in Genesis 6, 5 through 6, and the judgment is a worldwide flood. Then we have a new covenant. The new covenant is the Noahic covenant, which establishes human government. They are, again, mandated to multiply and fill the earth, just as they were in the original creation covenant. Rather than scattering, they are... they. Uh, build the Tower of Babel. They established the Kingdom of Man in, uh, at Babel and Shinar and build the Tower of Babel. So there's a judgment of confusion in languages. Now, all of this is the age of the Gentiles. Then we get to Israel. There is a new covenant that distinguishes one man and his descendants from the rest of the human race. Now, here's an interesting question. If somebody is a descendant of Japheth and they've migrated up into what is now southern Russia or over into western Europe, would they have any idea what was going on with Abraham? Not at all. Nevertheless, remember a change of administration in relation to either the entire human race or God is working through a segment of that human race. That's what's happening here because God has made a decision that he's no longer going to work through the human race as a whole. So whether somebody, some early proto-German up in uh, Germany understands this or not is really irrelevant. Some people try to make an issue out of this. That's the only reason I bring it up. Because Abraham knows and God is from then on only going to reveal himself through Abraham and his descendants. So it is a clear distinction from this point on, God is going to bless the rest of the human race only through Abraham. That's why we have a dispensational shift now at this particular point. You don't leave this off into some sort of transition period. It's clearly part of the age of Israel. They're to remain distinct, and they fail because they... Start the sons of Jacob began to intermarry with the Canaanites. They start to think like Canaanites, act like pagans, and become assimilated to Canaan. So God has to judge them through the Egyptian bondage, and which uh, isolates them in Egypt. Then we have their deliverance in the book of Exodus. God gives the Mosaic Law, which is the next covenant. It's a temporary covenant to govern his redeemed people. It is not a means of salvation, neither was it necessarily a means of sanctification, but it was the body of laws to govern the nation Israel. And that's very important for understanding uh, the whole principle of biblical interpretation, that much of the Old Testament is written to Israel, but we can learn a lot from it. But it's not written to church-age believers. It is not directly applicable. Only principles are indirectly applicable. We learn wisdom, and we learn a lot about God and his faithfulness and grace from looking at the Old Testament. Their responsibility under the covenant was to obey the law. They disobeyed and were expelled from the land, and so you have the diaspora 
of Israel. Only a small segment comes back. There's approximately, estimates are that there were at the time of the New Testament, maybe 8 to 10 million Jews worldwide. But only about a million and a half to two million lived in the land. Not a situation too dissimilar from today. You didn't have a massive, excuse me, you didn't have a massive return to, um, to the land following the Babylonian captivity. You still had vast numbers of Jews who stayed in Egypt, stayed in Babylon, stayed up in the area of Tur- modern Turkey, Asia Minor, and in various other locales. They did not return back to uh, the, back to the land of Israel. So they're still scattered. But God had to bring a segment back, and he had to restore the nation following the Babylonian captivity so that there would be a people in the land for the arrival of the Messiah. There had to be a, a nation and a national governing group there to make the decision whether or not to accept Jesus as the Messiah. So then we have another age, which I call the Messianic Age. And the reason I use the term Messianic Age is because Jesus comes to offer himself as the Messiah to Israel. That is his function. This is, it's, you have the forerunner in John the Baptist, that there is one coming after me whose, whose uh, sandal I'm not worthy to tie. He's the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And the message of John the Baptist was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a genuine offer of the kingdom. So this is the Messianic age because at least for 80% of that time period of Jesus' public ministry on earth, he is offering the kingdom to Israel. It's a legitimate offer. There's no hint of postponement. There's no hint that there's a future church age or anything like that. As far as the people know, it's, it's accept him and the kingdom will come or, or not. That's the issue. So you definitely have a distinct dispensation. Now, a lot of people have asked questions about this. Well, because if you look at Schofield or you look at Schaefer, you look at any number of dispensationalists, even today, you look at the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, um, they just follow this old Schofield scheme. But I think that you can take these criteria that we have that's laid out for a dispensation. Is there a is there new revelation that they're accountable to that, that's distinct? What were the Jews in the Old Testament responsible for? They had to believe in a future provision of a Messiah. But if Jesus is standing in front of you, what are you responsible for? Remember when Jesus is talking to Mary in John chapter 11, or to Martha? Says, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? See, it's present, real time. It's not believe that God's going to send a Messiah in the future, but that I am he. That was, it was real time. So you have a definite change in the, in the, in the message. So you have Jesus presenting himself as the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God, and John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. So we have a new revelation in the Son. The responsibility is now to accept Him as the Messiah. They failed and rejected Him as the Messiah. Matthew chapter 12, the Sanhedrin 
The Pharisees and Sadducees reject him as Messiah, even though thousands of Jews trusted him during the incarnation as the Messiah. The leadership did not, and the vast majority did not. Even after the church began, there were still uh, thousands of Jews that trusted Christ as Messiah. But it wasn't the majority of Israel, and it wasn't the leadership of Israel. So you have the cross and the fifth cycle of discipline. This is foreshadowed by Jesus' response to the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 when they say, oh, well, you're just doing all these miracles in the power of Beelzebub. That was when they rejected his Messiahship. They are attributing the testimony that God the Holy Spirit was giving them through Jesus' miracles, and they're attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Beelzebub. So Jesus said that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, there's all kinds of people that come along with different ideas as to what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, that it's the unforgivable sin. There's a lot of people who say there's an unforgivable sin. There's no unforgivable sin. But what about not believing in Jesus? Well, Jesus either paid for every sin or he didn't. That, that sin's paid for, it's just not accepted. He has to pay for every sin or you've got a problem. So there's no unforgivable sin. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't an unforgivable sin. It is the Pharisees, as the, as the leaders of Israel, rejecting Christ. And that foreshadows, are, are, are basically it sets in motion a, a string of events that are necessarily going to culminate in the 70 A.D. judgment. That's the issue there. Because they have made this decision, it's all, it sets Israel, as it were, nationally, on an irreversible course. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a national issue. It is a historically conditioned event. Nobody today can do that. No Gentile could do that. Only the Jews could do that. And they did it by attributing to Satan, the work of the Holy Spirit in validating the, the credentials of Jesus as Messiah. So nobody today can commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not the unforgivable sin. Uh, not believing in Jesus is not concerned. It's, it's, Jesus paid for the sin. The problem is that if you don't trust in him, if you don't believe in him, you're not sent to hell because you committed the sin of unbelief. You're sent to the lake of fire. Why? because you don't possess the perfect righteousness of Christ and you're spiritually dead. Remember, you have to have three things to get into heaven. Sin has to be paid for. You have to have a new life because you're born spiritually dead. You have to have regeneration. You have to have the imputation of, of righteousness. If you don't believe in Christ, you're not sent to hell or the lake of fire for punishment for committing the unforgivable sin of not believing in Christ. You're sent to the lake of fire because you're still spiritually dead and you haven't received imputed righteousness. The sin's still paid for. Okay? The reason I brought that up is that about five times this last week, it seems, I've heard somebody mention something about, you know, not believing in Jesus is the unforgivable sin. So I thought I'd run down that rabbit trail a minute. Okay. The cross is the ultimate revelation of God and his provision of grace for us. Then, just after the cross, we have a new dispensation begin. 
50 days later, we have the day of Pentecost and the church age. The new covenant was established on the cross, but it is not enacted. Now, that's, this is something that we're going to go over and over again as we get into Jeremiah, I mean, uh, Hebrews 8, dealing with Jeremiah 31 and the, and the new covenant. The new covenant is between God and Israel. We see this in Jeremiah 31. I will make my new covenant between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Do you hear the church anywhere in there? No. When you get into Hebrews chapter 8, you see the same thing. It's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and the church. Oh, no, wait a minute. It didn't say that. So where's the church? The church benefits from this covenant. It says, if I enter into a contract with another person, and I say on the basis of this legal contract, this provides a foundation for being able to provide for these other people. The people that are being provided for on the basis of the legal contract are not contract partners. They're beneficiaries of the contract. We have the precedent set in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, when Abraham said, I I will bless those who bless you, and you will be a blessing to all people. The contract is between God and Abraham, but all people are blessed through that. The contract simply provides the basis. So the contract is sealed in the ancient world with a sacrifice. That's what happens on the cross. But the contract, if you read the provisions, and we'll go into them as we get get there in Jeremiah 31, that hasn't ever happened. It is not happening in the church age. Somebody says, oh, well, wait a minute. You forgot. The apostle Paul said that we were ministers of the new covenant. That's right. Those who engage in evangelism are ministers of the new covenant because the foundation for the salvation of church age believers is still the new covenant. It hasn't gone into effect for Israel yet, but the blessing provision through Christ is ours by virtue of the church age believers become united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection at the instant of salvation. So we're united with the party of the first part. So we are ministers of the new covenant, even though the new covenant is not in effect yet. You say it's in effect, you have a problem, because when the new covenant goes into effect, the kingdom begins. And either we're in the kingdom or we're not in the kingdom. Unless, of course, you're a professor at Dallas Seminary and you've bought into George Eldon Ladd's solution, which was called the already-not-yet view of the kingdom, which means we're already there in some sense, but not yet really. Oh yeah, this this oh, scholars just love this. It's it's you know it's we're living in a postmodern age. It's easy to believe these things and believe two two different things. So we're already in the kingdom, and we're not yet. But in what sense are we in the kingdom? Is Jesus sitting on David's throne? And you had a couple of Dallas Seminary professors, Daryl Bach and Craig Blazing. Uh, came up with this idea that Jesus is now sitting on David's throne. It's been spiritualized. And they interpret the passages in Acts 3 in the same way that amillennialists do. We're going to get into this in a little bit. So it's called progressive dispensationalism because the kingdom comes in and it's progressively coming in. It was inaugurated with Jesus and it's progressively coming in. Whereas what I believe and traditional dispensationalists teach is that the kingdom was offered 
The people rejected it, so it's postponed. It doesn't come in at all. We're not in the kingdom in any sense. Well, we got the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that's that doesn't fit the parameters of Jeremiah thirty one. So this is one of the things, and not everybody in Dallas believes that, uh, by the way, but vast majority that dominates the New Testament department, it dominates most of the theology department, although I was uh, gratified to hear recently they hired a new professor in the theology department of Dallas, and he's not a progressive uh, dispensationalist. And most of the men, all the men, I think, in the Bible exposition department up there have resisted the... Uh, uh, Temptation to go into progressive dispensationalism. So it's real important to understand these distinctions. And like I said, this is kind of an overview. We'll get into it in more detail as we advance. Okay, the issue in the church age is faith alone in Christ alone. We now understand that the person that we're believing in is Jesus of Nazareth, who is Jesus HaMashiach. He is Yeshua HaMashiach. He is Jesus the Messiah. In the Old Testament, they didn't have a clear fix on who exactly it was going to be. So they believe that God is going to provide a redeemer, but they don't understand specifics. So that becomes important, too, as we'll see as I get into lessons later on. But most people are going to reject Christ. This is hard for some people to believe, to understand. But in each dispensation, the vast majority of people in the world have not trusted in, in God's salvific promise. The vast majority are going to go to the lake of fire. Only a minority trust Christ. We don't get caught up in some sort of pseudo optimism, thinking that I've heard, and I've heard people say this. Well, they grew up in the South. They went to some church. They probably heard the gospel when they were young, and they're probably a believer. You know, unless there's evidence to the contrary, they weren't. The indication in Scripture is the vast majority miss the narrow road. They take the wide road and they end up in Lake of Fire. So most reject Christ and the church age ends with the rapture and is followed by the tribulation. Tribulation is a judgment on the human race, not on the church. And the church age ends with the rapture of the church. And then the tribulation begins. The arrow's off a little bit. I'm not proposing by the diagram that it's a partial trib or mid-trib view. I guess conversion of the slide from PC to Mac changed my theology. No, not quite. So I'll have to move the arrow a little bit. The arrow precedes. The rapture is before the tribulation. And that ends with the second coming of Christ. The Millennial Kingdom, Armageddon ends the tribulation. Uh, the responsibility in the Millennial Kingdom is to obey Christ. But at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, Satan is released. There is a Gog and Magog revolt, and God uh, judges them. Okay, that's the failure is the Gog and Magog revolt. The judgment is Satan is released from the lake of fire I mean, or, and uh Satan is re- excuse that should be two different things. Satan is released. There is a judgment from heaven. Fire and brimstone destroys the rebellion, and then all those who are not believers are sent to the lake of fire. So that's that's the dispensational chart. What we didn't get into last time was this slide: church age. All those who die 
uh, unbelievers go to go to Hades as a holding place. At the end of the church age, all believers are raptured, alive and dead, to be with the Lord in the air. That's followed by a seven-year tribulation. All unbelievers who die during the tribulation go to Hades. In heaven, we have the judgment seat of Christ, followed by the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then there's a second advent at the time of the battle of Armageddon. There is a judgment of tribulation uh, survivors. Then we go into the millennial kingdom, lasts for a thousand years, which is followed by a, another judgment, the great white throne judgment. Unbelievers are, uh, all unbelievers are taken out of Hades and then cast into the lake of fire. Heavens, modern, he- the present heavens and earth are destroyed and we go into the new heavens and new earth. That's the outline for dispensations. Okay? Now let's go to some other issues related to dispensations. I've talked a little bit about covenant theology. And I talked more, the term I used actually was replacement theology. Now, replacement theology is a much broader term than covenant theology. Covenant theology relates to the theological systems that have their heritage in Reformed theology, specifically the theology of Calvin and Zwingli, who was the Swiss reformer, and Henri Bullinger. Okay, Bullinger, Zwingli, and Calvin really are the fountainhead of what's called Reformed theology, which is distinct from Lutheran theology or Baptist theology. And you would think of it more in terms of Calvinism or Presbyterianism or, in some cases, uh, congregational churches. Up in New England, you had congregational churches and Presbyterian churches. And the difference between a congregational church and and a Presbyterian church wasn't the congregational churches voted and Presbyterian churches didn't is that a Presbyterian church had a hierarchy that went beyond the local church. You had your synod and you had your assembly that, so that there is a, an authority external to the local church that they're accountable to. But in, among the Congregationalists, they had the same theology and pretty much the same polity in terms of having elders as opposed to just deacons, but they did not believe in an external hierarchy. Every church is local and autonomous. Now, they didn't go as far as the Baptists did, but, but they held to the autonomy of the local church. So you had two groups that you have in, in Puritan New England. You had Congregationalists and you had uh, Presbyterians. Now, the uh, theological system that dominates uh, in, among Presbyterians is called covenant theology. And as I pointed out, in covenant theology, the covenants that they're talking about are not the biblical covenants of the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. They believe in three theological covenants, which we'll get into in just a minute. Uh, Basic definition of covenant theology is it's a system of theology that's based on two, sometimes three covenants, which are governing categories for understanding, understanding the Bible. Now, let me... Let me go back and review something for you. There's three things that make you a dispensationalist. Uh, Charles Ryrie defined it as a sine qua non, a Latin phrase for without which nothing. These are the essential elements that make a person a dispensationalist. It doesn't have anything to do with how many dispensations you believe in. It has to do with more fundamental issues. Number one, a 
belief in a consistent, that's a key word, a consistent, literal, plain interpretation of Scripture. That uh, where you interpret prophecy just as literally as you interpret everything else. So the, the foundation is really a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture, which is what I want to spend most of the time talking about tonight. The second thing is that that leads you to understanding that God has a distinct plan for Israel from the church that you have to carry this out consistently throughout all of history, that God has one plan for Israel, one plan for the church, and that during this present age we have a church in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile, uh, bond or slave, male or female, all are one in Christ, that the issue of physical relationship to Abraham is not relevant to the present church age. It will be in the tribulation period and into the millennium, but right now, right now it's not. Now, in covenant theology, they would disagree with that. They would say that the church age today is modern Israel. Now, that leads to all kinds of problems because it puts, it almost, it, it leads to putting a political bent on the modern church because church is Israel. So if the church is, is Israel and the Israel in the Old Testament is, is really the church, then the Mosaic law has relevance for today and all those kingdom passages and rule passages and law passages become relevant for today. So it really gets messed up. So I just want to go over a few things here. The key issue is how they understand the Bible. They interpret the Bible through this grid of these two or three theologically inferred covenants. So according to them, all of God's work in history is the outworking of these particular covenants. And they are, first of all, the covenant of works. The covenant of works was an agreement, according to them, it's an agreement between God and Adam in which God promises life to Adam for perfect obedience, but if he's disobedient, then the penalty is going to be death. And it's called a covenant of works because Adam would have achieved eternal life if he had just obeyed God. So if he had done what God wanted him to do, then he would have earned, as it were, eternal life. So that's called a covenant of works. Adam broke the covenant when he ate the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, so that nullified the covenant, and it would have nothing whatsoever to do with us today. It was only in effect during the time of the Garden of Eden. In contrast to that, the dispensationalists would believe there was a creation covenant or a denic covenant that Adam did break it, but it wasn't based on, there wasn't a works basis there. It was just obedience or disobedience, not merit, because Adam is still plus R in the image of God. Now, Louis Burkhoff, a Reformed theologian, said that it's perfectly true that there's no such covenant recorded in Scripture and that the Scripture contains no explicit promise of eternal life for Adam. They say, but it's implied. You know, I've read through Genesis 1 through 3 a lot, but I haven't seen an implication of that. The problem is they can't go to Scripture to document these covenants. They are theologically inferred and then imposed on Scripture. This is the biggest danger that people have is that they come to some conclusion that X principle is true, and then they go read it back into the Scripture and rather than getting it out of the Scripture. Now, the... the Second covenant is called the covenant of redemption, but not all covenant theologians believe in a covenant of redemption. 
this is a covenant that they that those who hold to it say it's a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. It's not with man. That God the Father and God the Son enter into this covenant that the Father promises the Son that he will become head of the elect and the Son agrees to die for the elect. Again, I'll quote from Lewis Burkhoff. He says that this is the agreement between God the Father and the Son, giving the Son the headship and being the redeemer of the elect and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those that the Father had given him. But as I said, not all um, covenant theologians hold to this. The third covenant they call the covenant of grace. This is the major covenant in their system. Everything from the fall of Adam to the uh, end of history is under the covenant of grace. And Burkhoff says this is the gracious agreement between the authentic God and the offending but elect sinner in which God promises salvation by faith in Christ and the sinner accepts uh, by believing uh, a life and promising a life of faith and obedience. See, that's where you're going to get lordship salvation eke out of this because if you don't have a life of faith and obedience, then you didn't have genuine faith to begin with and you weren't really saved. Now, what's interesting is about all of this is that within covenant theology, even though we don't have any revelation to this effect, they believe that everybody in the Old Testament is saved the same way everybody in the New Testament is saved. And by that, I don't mean by faith alone and a promise of deliverance by God, but that they actually had revelation they were believing in Jesus Christ. Nothing changes. Whereas in contrast, dispensationalists believe in, in progressive revelation. All Adam understood was that the seed of the woman would be the deliverer. So he's, pro- he's believing that God is going to send a descendant the seed of the woman, and he will be the deliverer. And if he trusts in God for that and uh, is symbolized by animal sacrifices, then he'll be saved. Now, Abraham has a little greater understanding of this in progressive revelation. Abraham understands that it's going to be a promised seed that's going to come through him and Sarah and then through Isaac later on. And so there's a little tightening of that. And then later on, we learn that this is going to, the line of the seed is going to go through David. And then you have additional promises Isaiah uh, 7.14, that it's going to be, the, the seed of the woman is going to be born through the virgin. And then um, uh, uh, Micah 5.2, going to be born in Bethlehem. In other words, there's this progression. But nobody knows that the seed of the woman is going to be called Jesus of Nazareth until you get to Bethlehem and Mary gives birth to Jesus of Nazareth. And so there there is... There, as the as revelation progresses through history, God gives more and more information, and so there's uh, the the promise that you believe in it gets a little more detail. So, for them, this is a basic problem. Everything is squeezed into one concept, and they must say that God's plan of salvation is always specifically the same. It's identical. Uh, Burkhoff says, in determining the degree of knowledge of God, the ancient peoples of God, uh, let me reread that again, in determining the degree of knowledge of God that the, the ancient peoples of God had, we are not to be governed by our own capacity of discovering from the Old Testament scriptures the doctrines of grace. 
What amount of supplementary knowledge they received from the prophets are in direct revelation, we don't know. In other words, they knew it was going to be, he was going to be named Jesus of, of Nazareth, but the Old Testament just didn't tell us that. And so just because you can't find it there doesn't mean it's not true. So that's, that is part of covenant theology. So they emphasize the covenant of grace. Now, again, I remind you that their concept of covenants isn't what we're talking about when we talk about biblical Biblical covenants. So covenant theology assumes those covenants and interprets everything in the Bible on the basis of those theological covenants. That's called a top-down or theologically driven exegesis of Scripture. So you have three problems. First of all, this system merely projects a general idea of covenant and then tries to squeeze the biblical covenants into that theological covenant framework. They don't fit. Their system won't allow for separate, distinct covenants. And like I pointed out in the past, I don't have the slide on here for tonight, but I pointed out in the past that that the creation covenant is modified in the Adamic covenant. The Adamic covenant is further modified in the Noahic covenant, but that continues today in the signs of the rainbow. But when God steps back and he calls out Abraham, that follows a totally different tract. It's not a modification of the creation Adamic Noahic covenant, right? It is completely different. He's going to call out Abraham for a specific purpose, and the promises are going to go to, and the blessing is going to go to Israel. Now, for them, all the covenants have to be squeezed together, and it doesn't work. Second problem is that they either do not produce Scripture to substantiate or justify the existence of these covenants, or when they do give verses, the verses don't really back up what they say it does. And the third problem is that the Bible nowhere speaks of a covenant of works, a covenant of redemption, or a covenant of grace. But it does speak of the eight covenants that I've talked about the last couple of weeks related to which are described in the Bible. Now, covenant theology has some really damaging uh, effects in different areas of theology. First of all, in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. Now, many covenant theologians are very firm on literal interpretation until they get to prophecy. And then all of a sudden they begin to theologize and to uh, allegorize or spiritualize uh, the promises so that when God promised Abraham a specific piece of real estate, that is bounded by the uh, river of Egypt on the, on the southwest and the Euphrates to the west and northwest, they say, well, when Israel rejected that promise, the land now becomes heaven. So God changes the terms of the covenant? No, he still made that promise to Abraham that Abraham would possess. Abraham never possessed it. The only thing he had was a piece of real estate he bought near the cave of Machpelah, it's burial ground, but that's the only little piece of real estate, so that would mean that God could not be God because God broke his promise to Abraham. So they have various problems uh, hermeneutically. It, it leads to significant problems in other areas, for example, in their understanding of the church in ecclesiology. They have the idea that there's only one people of God, the elect. The church in Israel are the same thing. We're the New Testament Israel and Israel coming out of Egypt was the Old Testament church. 
And it's all one people of God. Therefore, there's nothing to distinguish the current church age believers from Old Testament believers or to distinguish revelation given to Israel in the Old Testament at Sinai and revelation today. So that would mean that the Ten Commandments are still in effect, but also all of the other non-ceremonial laws. See, they'll say, they'll, they'll make an exception. They'll say the ceremonial laws were fulfilled by Christ on the cross. But the other, the rest of the other part of the law continues today and is still supposed to be in effect. So that creates various other problems. And then when it comes to soteriology, oh man, that really affects a lot of stuff. Because this is where you come up with uh, lordship salvation coming out of part of this that you don't really know you have the right kind of faith to be saved unless you have works that are in keeping with it. And the, and the uh, slogan that you'll hear is, while saving faith is alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Let me say it again. While, the faith, while you're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. What they're doing is they're introducing works through the back door. And what they're saying is you're saved by faith alone. But see, if it's real faith, if it's genuine faith, if it's saving faith, then you're going to see a change in your life. And that is the evidence of your salvation. And if you don't see that change, then you better wonder whether or not you are actually saved. You could have been a false professor. You know, you have a pseudo-faith in Jesus. And they try to go to Scripture to prove that you can have a genuine faith in Jesus and a non-saving faith in Jesus. Just look at those people who saw all those signs and wonders that Jesus performed in Jerusalem at the first Passover, and it says, and they believed in him, pistuo ace. Now, the trouble is that pistuo ace is used everywhere else in the Gospel of John to indicate that which a believer, a person does to be saved. John 3.16, you are to believe in him, pistuo ace. John 3.18, believe in him, pistuo ace. But these people didn't believe in him. Why? Why, why didn't they believe in him? Well, two verses later it says, but, ah, Jesus knew what was in their heart, and he didn't trust them. See, they were really saved. They'd be trustworthy. The implication of that is that every believer should be perfectly trust, trustworthy because they have been regenerate. That's why you have things like Christian yellow pages. Right? You know, I don't care if my car mechanic, where he's going to end up eternally as long as he can fix my car. I don't really care where my cardiologist is going to end up eternally as long as he keeps me alive. I mean, I do care where they end up eternally, but you understand what I mean. You know, their, their relationship to God has nothing to do with their physical skill. So why do I want a Christian yellow pages to find some incompetent Christian to work on my car? Who's going to take advantage of me because you know I'm a you know I'm a gullible Christian? But that's that's where they end up going. You got this pseudo faith in in Jesus, so you can believe Jesus died for your sins. You're not really saved. You got to look around, make sure you got the right kind of works. So people have become fruit inspectors. Well, how much fruit's the right kind of fruit? How do you know? See, one time I asked John MacArthur this. Uh, we were at a, he was, he had just come out with his book on the gospel according to Jesus, which is the Bible for Lordship Salvation. And, uh, Tommy Ice had come up from Austin. He lived in Austin at the time. I was pastoring in Irving. And he came up to visit. So we could go to this 
uh, bre- pastor's breakfast and hear MacArthur. And we sat right down the, down the front row. And when it came to question and answer, I said, well, Dr. MacArthur, if you died today, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? He said, well, I'm 98% sure. Well, at least he was consistent with, his, with what he was teaching. You can't have assurance of salvation. See, people confuse eternal security with assurance of salvation. He's not saying you can lose your salvation because they believe that if you are truly saved, you're, you're secure. Just that you can't truly know that you're saved unless you have the right kind of works, and you don't really know that until you die because you've got to persevere all the way to the time you die. So that's how covenant theology works itself out in terms of salvation. also has other impacts because they see the general purpose of history as salvation They've always been extremely weak in angelology and demonology and not understanding spiritual warfare or the angelic conflict. It's just a major hole in their whole system. So there's, there's various problems like that. So what undergirds all of this is hermeneutics. Hermen who? Hermeneutics. And um, that is the science of interpretation. How do you how do you interpret things? And as I always say, you need to interpret the Bible the same way you interpret your your uh, the instructions to fill out your income tax return. If most Christians interpreted the their IRS instructions the way they interpret the Bible, they'd all be in jail because they all want to allegorize and spiritualize it and say, well, you know, you need to give. 15%, well, 15%, well, really, what does that number represent? That's really a symbol. I can't take 15 literally. It must mean 0.01%. That feels comfortable to me. Okay, let me pray about it and see how the Holy Spirit moves me. And, and oh, I feel much better about that, so I want to give 0.01%. And what's wrong with that? Well, we just get into all kinds of subjectivity, and everything falls apart after that, which is a problem. So what is a good definition of... Hermeneutics. Now I've got to back up one. Find my slide here. There we go. This is D.L. Cooper. Some of you have probably never heard of D.L. Cooper. Well, he, Dr. Cooper was Arnold Fruchtenbaum's pastor. So he died back in the late 60s, I believe. And he was a Jewish believer. And that's where Arnold got a lot of his stuff. Was from, not to take away anything from Arnold, but that's who his pastor was. I just thought... We'd like to have that little extra knowledge. And this is a great, concise statement of literal, plain hermeneutic. He said, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. In other words, when it makes sense just the way you read it, don't try to make it mean something else. Don't look for some hidden meaning, some something between the lines or anything else. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary usual literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passage passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. In other words, there's got to be good contextual evidence that figures of speech or idioms or things of that nature are being used. And when we talk about literal, plain understanding of Scripture, that's what we mean. is is not that there are no figures of speech. It's not that we don't believe there are idioms, but that's how people understand it. And idioms and figures of speech wouldn't make sense 
unless there were an underlying uh, literalness. So that every time you use a figure of speech, people know what you mean because that figure of speech has become axiomatic or idiomatic, and everybody knows what that means, that it doesn't, isn't to be understood uh, in a wooden fashion. So that is a good definition of, of, of literal hermeneutics. Sometimes it's just simply referred to as normal interpretation. Sometimes people refer to it as plain or simple interpretation, just using the standard uh, norms of interpreting speech in order to understand things. A good uh, statement on this is by J.H. Uh, Lang, no, not J.H. Lang, another Lang, uh, Lang's commentary on Revelation says the literalist, the so-called literalist, is not one who denies the figurative language or that figurative language, that symbols are used in prophecy, nor does he deny the great spiritual truths are set forth therein. His position is simply that the prophecies are to be normally interpreted, that is, according to the received laws of language as any other utterances are interpreted, that which is manifestly figurative being so regarded. In other words, you can tell when somebody is speaking literally or when they're using an idiom or a figure figure of speech. So that's your basic understanding. Now, how do we know that prophecy should be understood literally? Let me leave that up a little longer in case you didn't get it all down. How do we know that prophecy should be regarded literally? Well, three lines of evidence. First of all, Old Testament prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. Right? Old Testament prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. So we would assume that Old Testament prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled is also going to be uh, fulfilled literally. For example, in Micah 5.2, it says that, that the Messiah is going to be born in uh, Bethlehem. He's not going to be born down the road at, at Ashkelon. He's not going to be born in Jerusalem. He's not going to be born in Nazareth. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? In Bethlehem. Pretty literal fulfillment. Uh, Isaiah 7:14. he's going to be born of the virgin. Was he born just of a young girl? No. He's born of the virgin. So there's a literal fulfillment there. We have the, the chronology laid out in Daniel 9, Daniel 70 weeks. And it lays out exactly the timetable between the return, the decree to return to the land and the cutting off of the Messiah. And it happens down to the, down to the very week. So we, we know that, that prophecies that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled literally, that, that the Messiah would be pierced, that he would be crucified, that they would gamble for his clothing, that he would spend three days in the tomb. All of that was fulfilled literally. So the, the precedent is set that already fulfilled prophecy has been fulfilled literally. Second thing is that in terms of language and the image of God, we went over this several weeks ago and just talking about language, and I think that was in the Genesis uh, series on Tuesday nights, and the principle is that God created man in his image. God in his omniscience knew how to create human beings in such a way that he could communicate and they could understand it. He didn't create them in such a way that he'd have to figure out how to do it in a somewhat obfuscated manner or that they'd have to 
you know, throw the dice to figure out exactly what God meant or guess what the symbols might be, but there would be a clear uh, understanding that he could communicate in a way that they could understand. Now, there's a good quote on this from Gordon. Uh, I put Gordon H. C. Clark. It's Gordon H. Clark, Gordon Clark. Uh, he says, If God created man in his own rational image and endowed him with the power of speech, then a purpose of language, in fact, the chief purpose of language, would naturally be the revelation of truth to man and the prayers of man to God. In a theistic philosophy, one ought not to say that all language has been devised in order to describe and discuss the finite objects of our sense experience. On the contrary, language was devised by God, that is, God created man uh, rational for the purpose of theological expression. I don't know why part of that word dropped out. So God created man to communicate to him, and so man can understand him, and, and you don't have to work at it. So the second reason we should interpret prophecy literally is because that's the way language functions. And third, any sort of hermeneutical system or interpretive system that is not literal leads to subjectivity. You can make, somebody over here may say, well, I think this symbol means X. Somebody over here says, no, that symbol means non-X. Well, who's right? Well, let's go pray about it and see who's warm and filled. Right? There's no certainty. There's no objectivity. There's no standard for understanding what something means. And if you don't know what it means, how can you be held accountable for it? But it's clear from Scripture that God intends to communicate to us and that we are expected to understand precisely what he means and what he doesn't mean and that we're held accountable for it. Okay, so that's the foundation for understanding uh, hermeneutics for uh, dispensationalism. Now, I'm going to come back and continue this next time and get into some more details, especially the major problem that people seem to run into or talk about is how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. Because what covenant theology says is that the New Testament tells you what the Old Testament means. But when when they say that, they come along and they change the meaning. So they well, you didn't realize, Abraham, that God really wasn't talking about that piece of real estate. He was just talking about heaven. But you've got to read the New Testament before you get that in place. Really. So for them, the New Testament tells you what the Old Testament means, which is really different from thinking that the Old Testament, the whole idea of progressive revelation and the Old Testament, the New Testament rather, fulfills that which the Old Testament revealed. So we'll get into that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and study these things and to think a little more clearly about these different ideas because as we listen to people or we hear things or we listen to somebody on the radio or television, uh, these different ideas crop up. And so by understanding this, it increases our discernment and our ability to understand uh, what the issues are in trying to understand your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.